Hello and welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Jim Rugg. I'm Nate Piscor. I'm Michelle Fife. Special guest in the house. Before we dive into today's video, I want to point out that Ed and I will be on the road in October at CXC in Columbus, October 6th through the 9th. We will be in Baltimore Comic Con the end of the month, October 28th through the 30th. And I will be at Jacksonville Public Library, October 22nd for a comic and zine fest. We are also getting ready to enter October, which is Cartoonist Kayfabe-tober. Here are our drawing prompts. We will be sharing these, of course, uh, throughout our social media. And if you tag us in your post, we'll be sharing some of your drawings. Looking forward to seeing some of the uh, Cartoonist Kayfabe faithful out there interpret some of these. Should be a very fun month watching all those drawings come in. We are also working cartoonists, and the way you support Cartoonist Kayfabe is buy our comics. Ed Piscor's Red Room, the Anti-Social Network, came out last year. Trigger Warnings, the second season of Red Room, will be out in September, and you can see it really will be out. We have the uh, the proof here in the actual book. These are both self-contained. You can start with either one, so whenever you find one of these at your local comic shop, pick it up, give it a shot. That is Red Room. You can buy Hulk Grand Design, Monster Madness are both in comic shops now. The collection of this will be out early next year in an oversized, attractive, uh, treasury-sized edition with a fluorescent green cover. You're going to want to pre-order that now at your local comic shop or wherever you buy books. Street Angel Deadliest Girl Alive, back in print from Image Comics after being unavailable for almost a year. You can now find this wherever you pick up books or comics. And our special guest today, Michelle Fife, doing Copra. And uh, coming up, the large hardcover oversized collection of the first 12 issues of Copra. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Master Collection. In stores in November. You yeah. can pre-order that now at your local comic shop or wherever you buy comics. And you can find current issues of Copra on his Etsy by going to michellefife.com. Perfect. Thanks, Jim. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So today... We are going to look at the Howard Shaken interview from the Comics Journal number 109. This is uh, 1985, I believe, is when this comes out, 1985-1986 time period. June 1986. A very uh, exciting time for comics. We often talk about 1986, and this issue is loaded. I would recommend this entire issue, but for the sake of uh, only having so many hours in the day, we are going to focus on the Howard Shaken interview. Yes, and, and here's what's going to happen and, and oh, like in the future with some cartoonist kayfabe episodes we're going to do and we could thank michelle fife for pulling this thing out and and you know forcing us to take a look at a 1986 period uh comics journal magazine when we started the channel uh we went issue wizard issue one was the very first episode of cartoonist kayfabe and the idea was telling the story of the speculator boom and bust that we were a part of growing up you're able to use wizard as a narrative for that i think we're going to have to go through like the 1986 period but you can't get there without the the pre and post so because Fantagraphics gave us the keys to the kingdom we're gonna have to go through like probably January 1984 up to like 87 or something like that issue by issue and I think it'll be two episodes per issue of Comics Journal we do the big interview as one episode we do the rest of the mag for the other because the stuff that's in here is fucking unbelievable and we'll just make mind-boggling episodes so we're going to handle this interview uh it, it this informs us on a lot of future episodes yeah S subscribe to cartoonist kayfabe yes well said <laughs> look at these sketches dude i love the way he draws those fedoras by the way I, we're going to talk about the interview but just that swooping line it's mm -hmm. one line yes. it's like one pen stroke making that that swoosh almost calligraphy for your brim of your hat yeah fantastic and you know you can almost see his approach or his influence of illustration 
probably one of the cartoonists who really uh, brought a lot from illustration into comics and into his style. And it'll come up a little bit as we uh, as we dive into this. But Michelle, you you recommended this when we were talking about things we could talk about. Do you want to start us off? What mm-hmm. what stood out in this interview? What makes you come back to this interview time and time again? Well, the thing is, just some brief context. Like years before I discovered this interview, I was I became a Howard Chaykin fan, little by little, you know. Uh, mostly through American Flag, I discovered that in like a back issue section, and I just fell in love with it. And then um, I discovered Times Squared, kind of through this interview. Um, I just, you know, I saw it in, in a catalog of Fantagraphics, and I ordered it because I recognized the name and I was interested. But it just hit me at the right time when I was like trying to break in and I was trying to like juggle uh, my own sensibilities with what the industry standard was, and so. That kind of that's really talked about here, you know, that sort of uh, dichotomy, and just it really hit home in a weird way. It was like uh, it was a my Bible in a way. It was like my textbook. So every time I, I read it, I just get something new from it. So I do revisit it like often, you know. Yeah, I think it's an interesting time. Uh, he's coming up. I think a couple issues of the Shadow has come out, and in the little intro here, it says, you know, it's his, his most uh, his most recent work, the Shadow, DC's biggest current hit, next to Frank Miller's Dark Knight. Which, talk about being stuck in a weird position, you know what I mean? Like, you come out with with probably his biggest comic uh, up to this point, maybe in his career, and you're overshadowed by The Dark Knight Returns. I I think think that's, that's in a certain way, like, that's his career in a nutshell, in a certain way, because he, his stuff, and he sees it, and I think throughout this interview he expresses a little bit of frustration of, like, knowing that the material is exceptional. He's, he knows he's making exceptional comics. But his comics are always buttressed next to these either flash in the pan kinds of like these du jour comics, you know, your mutant comics, or like another comic of equal caliber is getting a lot of shine because of one sort of uh, cultural piece in these comics that like people really latch on to. Like he's not trying to placate your average, like the, the average audience. Uh, with the stuff that he does, and, and that seems to be a, set, a piece of frustration for him. Right. This thing. Right. Yeah, they start out with Gary Groth asking him to basically uh, summarize your career for us, and from mm. the beginning, man, they're fighting over this this kind of thing, this summary. And, yeah. and again, it feels like Chaykin is. He talks about being tired yeah. several times in this interview, and it does feel like that frustration. You're, you're catching him at a point, maybe the peak of that frustration in a lot of ways, as he goes through and summarizes it. And it's everything you said, Ed. It's uh, he often refers to Teenage Mutant, yeah, is what he refers to these the, the most popular books that are out there, and how he just can't he can't be interested in those. Like he can't <laughs> he can't put those out for various reasons. He says he doesn't have, I don't know, I guess chops would be the word for it, but also he doesn't have the passion for that stuff either, and the amount of work that making comics takes. That's why he's tired, and he just can't put that kind of enthusiasm behind Teenage Mutant. This guy, he just finished... He's an adult. He just yes. finished doing, what, 26 issues of monthly American flag comics, writing, penciling, and inking. And mm-hmm. creating a world. And creating a world. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't miss a beat, didn't miss a deadline. He has every right to be tired right now. Yes. I uh, I just remembered that the first time I ever saw Chicken actually was in that Wizard in, uh, interview that he did. I think it was Wizard issue 46 some, or something like some that. Some Power and Glory shit or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that interview itself just blew my mind. I had no idea who this guy was, but I was a Wizard reader, 
on and off, and I just happened to pick that issue up, and he, it blew me away, and I saw that cover of uh, American Flag, and I'm like, I need this in my life. It was the perfect age for me. It'd be like, I'm kind of outgrowing superheroes, but I like underground-looking stuff or independent-looking stuff, and that just kind of hit a sweet spot where it's also a little older, so I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go back to the bins, and that's when I became a fan during that interview. I mean, it showed Black Kiss covers. It yeah. showed Power and Glory. I was like, I love this guy. I don't know who the fuck this is, but... I'm in. Yeah, his sensibility certainly was always distinct, at least from the 80s up, because that's the stuff that I would find with him, too. And at that point, it was like, yeah, his stuff does not look like anybody else's. Uh, before I turn the page, I just wanted to give this little bit of background. Worked as an assistant to Wallywood and Gil Kane and worked with Neil Adams. So quite a pedigree as he's like coming up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at this point, he's 35 in this time, this interview, about 15 years uh, working as a professional in comics. And man, that is quite a background, ha having those yeah. guys as... Uh, you know, spending time with those guys. Keeps going, what a list. Keeps calling himself a very old man in this thing. <laughs> yes. And one of the interesting pieces, might even be on this page where your hand is, Jimmy, is uh, he's he's back in comics now after a certain amount of time of being away. Like in the late 70s after, after Star Wars and some other stuff. Like he went away. And uh, at this time, they asked him, you know, where, well, where'd you go? Uh, illustrations, like book cover design. Right. And, and then after this material, he'll, he'll go away and be a Hollywood writer for, for quite some time. And, and the way he would describe it uh, very publicly is like he was working on and writing things that he would never watch <laughs> on television. Yeah, like that's yeah. what all of his jobs were. Uh, talks a little bit about doing uh, crime fiction and contextualizing shadow in crime fiction and says he prefers that to science fiction and gets into like genre talk, which is yeah. kind of interesting. And uh, I think I think that's a big part of comic genre, not not just crime fiction or science fiction, but even superhero is such a genre at this point. I think it's a big part of how we understand the language of comics. And in fandom back in these days, you had your the squad that you were a part of. And there were even, literally, there were names for people who were science fiction fans and comic fans. Like, you were called a double fan, meaning, like, right. we couldn't imagine you could be a fan of three things, even. <laughs> uh, so there were these lines of demarcation, and they spent some, some lip service uh, in this interview, uh, trying to, you know, Gary Groth trying to find the virtues of, of, of the crime genre. Uh, as being better or worse than science fiction because, uh, you know, like, what's the difference to Gary Groth? The other thing, with their, with their contentiousness that sort of goes back and forth, just sort of knowing Gary Groth and getting to know Chaikin, like, just in the real world, certainly the Groth stuff, the things that come across as kind of harsh in the written word, he really does say that shit with a smile on his face. You know, like, so there are parts where it fe feels like a very spirited back and forth that could be along the lines of like legit argument i don't think it ever really gets to that place and they're old friends too exactly so they could they could talk like that to one another totally like on our gary groth shoot interview whenever jim steranko kicked him out of the house when uh steranko needed to do some painting he said i went to crash on the couch at howie's place yeah, it's interesting. I forgot about that. But yeah, obviously a long relationship, these two knowing each other and probably having a ton of these kinds of discussions. Yeah. Talking art and literature. And Gary mentions around here um, the moral responsibility to do art. Yes. You know, as opposed to commercial work. And I think that's like a pretty strong through line for uh, not only Chaikin's career, but this entire interview and, the, and, and Groth's opinion of art and comics in general. 
and it's just that sort of like struggle between you know the commercial and the art and defining what those things are and it, i think it, i think they're just at odds throughout the whole thing with that very same topic that's something that i think gary or fanographics or comics journal brought to comics right like they were super critical of the business practices of marvel and dc comics and so you can see a morality or ethics being uh infused in that and, and you could apply it widely to commercial art in general i feel like these are conversations that do not happen today yeah and and even like with this interview gary gary will get on his kind of academic high horse at a certain form but then howard shakeman will always remind him that are you not also the publisher of the X-Men Companions? Yeah. And, and the, yeah. you know, I look into George Perez, like that type of shit. Which is not addressed. Gary doesn't respond to that. <laughs> he kind of flips another, he flips it to another question. That, that really stood out this time around. <laughs> I was looking for an answer. I'm like, yeah, how do you respond to, you know, printing focus on John Byrne? Shaking went a little light. You know, he didn't even say the word critters. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, for anybody that would be unfamiliar with this, if you were picking this up exclusively as a Chaikin fan and not really knowledgeable about the comics industry, I mean, that's a reality, right? You're, you're publishing fanographics, like you need certain things that are going to afford you to publish, to, to continue publishing. Yeah. You need some money. You have to make money somewhere yeah. if you're going to publish. You know, we would see it with like Eros comes up, I don't know, a couple years after this interview, probably. And I mean, that was just a moneymaker, obviously. They're, they're not aiming for art whenever Fanographics is publishing porn. They flat it's out said paying it. paying the bills. They flat out said it. They were like, at that moment in time, we could have gone two directions. We could have done superhero comics or we could have done porn. And we went with, you know, the, the, the least morally objectionable. Yeah, or, but <laughs> their superhero yeah. comics would have sold. <laughs> they would have to do image level exactly. bullshit. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Also, the interesting part about that is that Gary calls it a moral responsibility like that's loaded that's huge a lot of people who don't make art like bringing your politics into things and 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 what's your message right and the artist has no obligation to anybody like first off you're doing it for free if you're making art like there's nobody commissioning you to to like make it so you don't owe anybody anything no and chicken's counterpoint is that well my moral responsibility is to pay my bills and survive yeah like, what's wrong with that? They spend a lot of time on it. That's the bulk of this page, and it transitions into then commercial art. And Chaikin, a longtime fan of, like, illustration, purely commercial art, and defending some of that, I don't know, his fascination for it. And I think that's one of the things that makes me like Chaikin is some of these outside influences that he's bringing to the comics page and to design. Yeah. But, again, like, these are conversations that I just don't see people having anymore. You know, like, now if you're a successful cartoonist or, or comic book illustrator, yeah, maybe you'll go do storyboards for some big budget movie, or you'll do concept art, or you'll do covers or posters or who knows what, albums, you know, like, all of those things exist now, and it feels like there's no barrier, there's no conversation about morality in any of this stuff, and I don't know where all those conversations fall away. Like, we just accept, like, the inevitability of real life, or we decide, like, there is no morality. Like, what's the issue? Like, why are those conversations gone? There was just more money floating around. Like in the old days, FIFA, you brought it up in your shoot interview about how like the concept of like selling out has just like, it's changed. Like, sure, back when The Who was able to sell a million records a month or something, they didn't have to have some of their songs on a Ford Taurus commercial. Mm -hmm. But now with the music industry being what it turned into, like it is now a viable income stream to it's just part of the, the license it's part of the game yeah. right now man and so like 
if you are on a specific high, high horse now, there's probably a trust fund waiting for you or your wife is a heart surgeon or something like that. There's, there's some, some financial piece at play that isn't making it paramount for you to bring in an income if you can hold yourself to that kind of high of a standard at this point right now. The internet has basically, I feel like, been the thing to change that conversation and require more kind of income streams because there's a lot of bootlegging of everything and you gotta, if you, if you want to make it, you gotta get it in any way you can. Well, do you think like this more responsibility topic that comes from a place of privilege? Yes. Like having a concern for that stuff. Like yeah. you said, you know, the... Absolutely. You know, yeah. I think that's a, that's a thing that that's never spoken about. Like no one really talks about like who funded the artists, you know, who produced these masterpieces. You know, it's like some of them got to work. Dan Claus has to do CD album covers and, and to pay the rent back in the day. You it, know, you got to take commercial work. Yeah, for sure. Some of the names that come up in here as we're talking about commercial art and mainstream comics is there's a lot of fighting over trying to define some of these different areas, commercial art, mainstream comics, and on and on. And Chaikin seems less interested in this. He flat out says, the work I do uh, is in the realm of mainstream comics, but he's not interested in, in really discussing that part, which to me, I think of as almost sales. Like he's not maybe interested in discussing why his stuff doesn't sell as well as these Teenage Mutant books. But it's fun to see them go through and name names like Alex Toth, who Chaikin in this interview really holds in high, high esteem, calls his work extraordinary. Um, Harvey Kurtzman, Art Spiegelman comes up. Before that, uh, he, he mentions uh, Art Adams. And one of the things I like a lot about Chaikin is, to this day, he still keeps his eyes on, on, the, on the racks to a certain extent. And uh, is always spotting fresh talent, uh, cool, interesting comics. And to this day, like, catching dinner with them, you got to take notes because there might be four or five comics that have come across his radar that I haven't heard about, yeah. mm -hmm. and they're new, and got to check them out. Yemi Fur was his favorite comic for years, from what I remember. He would always pimp that for Chester Brown. I have to read this line since I'm a Toth Mark. This is uh, Chaikin. I'm on more than record as saying that I regard Alex Toth as God's representative in comics. <laughs> <laughs> so it comes honest, the, uh, the Toth fans out here. I think his conscious, his awareness of the uh, of commercial publishing and commercial art does inform some of his lack of interest in saying mainstream comics and getting into some of the, uh, I don't know, the minutia of defining what is mainstream comics and what isn't. Yeah. Because in some industries, like that is defined. Creative or commercial art, when you're doing a book cover, there's no if ands, or buts. That is there to sell that book. Yes. That Somehow in comics, we have a, an argument over this. You know. Right. Yeah, and it, oh, another thing I love about this, man, is it really is Chaikin's voice. Uh, because there will be times, like, I grabbed these uh, the Conan paperbacks at the at the Ides sale a year or two ago, and, and I'd never read those things, and I just posted an image with all of them. And he responded, like, uh, yeah, you would have really loved them when you were 11. And even Gary Groth <laughs> responded, like, yeah, you're aged out of this one, bud. Uh, they were right, by the way, like, I... Checked them out. Okay, I'm on They're some other right. shit. There's uh, there's some fun bits too where they're talking about Art Spiegelman, and Shaken says, uh, "Turns off, turn off the recorder." Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that happens a couple of times, and I, I, 
it makes me very curious like what do you need to say off record some of it too man is uh when he's getting spicy with gary there is uh, a leslie chaken who's who's uh sitting ringside kind of like the mickey to howard chaken's rocky balboa and when uh uncle howie's getting spicy like leslie will ch chime in and say hey can, can you dial it back and then chaken will be like cut it off cut that shit off for a minute also in this realm of like moral responsibility and highfalutin conversations about art chaken is fucking well prepared in this conversation because it's like okay now you brought up art spiegelman gummo bubbleman the dude working at tops that's making right. wacky packages and garbage pail kids that that guy that's right <laughs> you know like chaken yeah. is ready to go man this is a great conversation well he knows his shit you yeah know? and he, he's so reluctant not reluctant actually but you could kind of feel that he wants to give Spiegelman his propers, right? He just has to give them. He's like, yeah, you created a good work, right? Mouse is exceptional. But it's like with a grain of salt, he says that. Because he just knows that there's more to it than just that. It does say that he doesn't have the energy to go after the raw crowd. And so then they have to get into like, well, who is your crowd? Or who is the raw crowd? He, he calls the raw right. crowd reasonably hostile ersatz intellectuals <laughs> who feel a profound need to surround themselves with other people's private jokes. That hasn't changed. Not at all, dude. Like, like the conversations about mainstream comics that came from like indie type people back in the day, online and stuff. You could always feel a little bit of like superiority in their language mm -hmm. about even how we're taking comics. By the way, yeah. It was hostile. The, yeah. the two groups of comics readers were really defi defined themselves, and there was hostility towards the other groups. You know, one were these uh, pseudo intellectuals, and you know, the other were like, uh, what, D dudes living in their mom's basement still reading Spider Man. Yeah. It was like, it was, it was, uh, it was hostile it, between those two groups. But it's the same kind of person, though. That's right. the thing. One is just academically minded. Yeah, but you know what? You can make a choice. Like, you can, you can choose to like. Pan, like sell your stuff to the hipster or the flag waving fanboy and i i choose the fanboy I, the fanboy feels more honest to me mm -hmm. you know like the intellectual hipster kid well because it comes from childhood like we lived that life you kind of have to like grow into that other life it, it, it feels some it's, people a, do. it's a it feels like artifice you yeah know, in a large way like yeah. a costume sure and shit man you're you're in you're in nyc like you see a lot of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chaykin says that for in terms of his audience, he doesn't think about his audience. He works for himself. That's the move. Is it? Because I feel like we all talk about audience quite a bit. I, Michelle, you, you self-publish. You went away from that and come back to it. And, I, and the thing I see there is a real close connection to your audience. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you must think about your audience. Yeah, well, I think that's part of it, though, these days. That's part of the landscape. Right, like Chaykin doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to converse with anyone. He just produces a thing and gives it to a company and then let the company do their job. That's part of my job though, is to kind of provide customer service and, and not only that, but just develop relationships with my audience. Sure, that's a different thing than the work. Uh, like, I don't know about you, but like the, I'm not consciously like, I think this will sell. And in fact, when you read those kinds of comics and usually it's in this, young adult space right at this very minute mm -hmm. where people are trying to make conscious like this will sell in the young adult market it doesn't right and it reads as pandering horseshit right um, uh in this area though what i stood think there's out... no way that's limited to young adult 
Can no, no, no. I am, I, I am saying they're, that that is the prime to, example uh, of of where I see it the most because clearly Raina Taugemeyer like set a template and there's all these like bottom feeders that are like grubbing, 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 and then it's like you don't. She's so honest with her stuff. It's people who are dishonest with that that are like I'm gonna like create this product sure. and it's like nah, you don't have it. Yeah, I think that distance that Chicken has with his audience uh, kind of develops his. Um, his stance on, well, I can't take your opinion seriously. If you like my stuff, great. But you probably also like X-Men. And to him, that's <laughs> that's that's not good. <laughs> you can't respect that. But that also extends to the company itself, the publishers. You know, if you're producing this kind of work, you can't possibly understand or appreciate or even support what I do. And I just think that's interesting and telling of his relationship with these companies. He goes back to these companies, though. He still works within that framework, so... I don't know. It's an ongoing process. Yeah, work for a hire becomes a big, extra chunk of this conversation. Yeah, yeah. This is where he gets into this idea of like uh, comics being a young person's game, at least the uh, the mainstream comics. And he being thirty five makes him like super old. Talks about dying at age forty five, yeah. but also talks about you know being twenty five and like burning out. You know these hot young cartoonists. So interesting perspective on the comics industry from a time that I had no engagement with the comics industry so I just have to trust when you read these accounts well we have the benefits of retrospect and history and and he mentions names you know like Bernie Wrightson mm -hmm. he came and, he, yeah. and now at this time what's he doing uh, Ghostbusters character designs and stuff and 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 uh, he's names name after name who it's all supernovas and they price themselves out of comics they burn themselves out like you have to you have to be the superstar by 23 or or right. you know you're 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 washed up yeah the way the industry just churns out just just uh devours the talent yeah yeah that's uh <laughs> man imagine making comics at this time period or like being like 20 and breaking in and reading an interview like this talk about like uh i mean I cautionary it, tale or something i read it 10 years after the fact but i felt that he i was like oh yeah you got to draw a specific way you got to do certain things if you want to break in, if you want to survive. You crack open those little comics too. They're, it's mostly the flaws in the writing in those those old comics. Like everybody has like a base level of what is professional draftsmanship and it's better than so much of like what people could do now. And, and that's off the top of the dome. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not you having Google image search and all kinds of stuff. So, so he does get into this about like the writing of comics uh, is where he sees things lacking more, more than anything. Praises John Byrne, says that he's in awe of what Byrne does. Yeah. Which Groth really seems to, like, not not appreciate. <laughs> well, I think Groth just sees it as, like, what Byrne represents in the artistic field, right? Where Chaikin's just like, this guy produces high volume, high quality for what it is. It's not his bag, but he, it's sharp-looking stuff. And I, he, he ties that directly to Byrne's success, which is interesting. He says that it, it would take Chaikin and the time it takes him to do a page, or he knows what it takes physically for him to, to do a page, John does six. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's a weird thing to consider. And Groth brings it up. Like, is that really the thing to celebrate? Like, it's just that he's his output is so great. And in a weird way... It's a commercial bid, it's, man. It's yeah. Chaikin, Chaikin recognizes that. You know, yeah. that's a certain part of the game, and it's like Burns better at it than almost anyone else. Right. At right, least right. that part. And you could say that that is part of his his success, just showing up relentlessly on the shelves time after time. But kids dug that. 
He was a favorite for a reason. So the fact that he he put in the muscle to make so many comics helped. It was all just part one of his. It's part of his success, I think. And Chaykin just knows that, and he knows his own limitations, which is super interesting because I don't think you hear that very often. Gil Kane is the chairman meow of, of the whole situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting the connection that both Groth and Chaykin have. You know, they both have some real connection to Gil Kane, so it's fun whenever a name like that comes up and they can they can spin this conversation around a third party that they that they're mutually uh, close to. Well, Kane in one interview he said that um facility like once you reach facility if you want to do anything beyond facility you can't so if that's your goal to just be quick and just churn out stuff congratulations you reached that goal that's a fucking hard goal to reach but if you want to do anything beyond that it's impossible you're dead you're burnt out because you're just you've conditioned yourself to just produce and produce and produce you can't slow down you can't consider work doing one year at the Qbert school I feel like, you know, nearly 20 years removed, I'm still deprogramming myself from some of the kind of, like, sort of hack mentality that was put into your mind to, if you want to get a job, like, these are the skills that will make it possible for you to get a job, doesn't mean that you're going to excel or, like, rise above uh, anybody else in terms of popularity. Mm -hmm. uh, so, like... It, I totally see what you're saying. It could be very infectious if you get into that sort of rhythm. Yeah, except these days that doesn't really pay off the way it paid off back then in the 70s and the 80s, yeah. even in the, in the 90s. Right now people like to take their time, really cultivate their style and their fan base or whatever. That kind of process uh, is not really applicable in today's standard, in today's industry rather. Do you think that's reflective of quality becoming a bigger thing now? Like back then everything's distributed monthly and it's gone. You know, you get a couple weeks, you sell as many as you can and then the next piece is coming in. And now it's like things get collected and if it's good or it connects to an audience, maybe it's perennial seller and now we've got multiple printings sure. and it's this ongoing revenue source. So the value is there is a quality check now that didn't exist in the 80s and even into the early 90s as long as like that newsstand model of like just put the new product out, put the new product out, put the new product out. And yes, if you can sell more, you're getting royalties at some point in the 80s, yeah. those begin. But it's a totally different industry now where it's like being that fast really doesn't reward you now the way it did back then. Because yeah. now it's like I need it to sell next year still. Yes. I you need know, it to outlast my peers. A good example of that would be uh, the, this new John Romita Jr. Uh, Spider-Man stuff where we know what he's capable of. He's done Spider-Man before, like with his prominent style. And he did Thor comics at the exact same time for, for like years. So we know that he can do 40 to 60 pages a month. But on this new Spider-Man, I think he did he, like six. And then that was, that was your bid. So like that's the model now. It's like you do your story, you do a couple, you do an arc, and then maybe you do another one, but maybe not. You move over, you let someone else do another six issues. Yeah, yeah, that, it's, yeah, that's the model for sure. And they might be working on those six issues while you're working on yours. Mm -hmm. This section is talking about his time as uh, Wood's assistant and Gil Kane's assistant. And he says one of the things with uh, Gil Kane, he'd come in, says Gil Kane taught him to uh, sit at the board, which he says is a little bit abstract, but I think is interesting, especially again for young cartoonists to like, that thing of sitting there for 50 hours a week not the easiest thing in the world. There's yeah. physical tool, there's mental tool, and there's also just like carve up your schedule so you get those 50 hours at yeah. the board. Mm -hmm. There's a lot there, so that's kind of neat. But he says he would show up 
and Kane would be like, who do you like? And Chaykin would say whoever, and then Kane would just destroy that person. Doesn't that sound like Beatrix Kiddo and Paimé, or like Arlie Emery in uh, Full Metal Jacket, where it's like, maybe no answer would be the right answer. Like, this is, you're in boot camp, son, and I don't care. Right, no matter who you say, it's... Yeah, there's still a crease in your the shirt. Gun. You yeah. still got to do those push-ups. And I call it, I call it patience muscles that you develop as, as a kid, because it was so, like, like, I just remember so clearly being able to do, like, maybe three pages with enthusiasm, uh, and then starting to waver, because you just get, your, your right. art's growing too fast, and then you, your shit is obsolete within those three pages. And just slowly, slowly, just developing the patience muscle to be able to be meditative, relaxed, create a nice, comfortable space for you to find enjoyment, uh, an enjoyable place to be for 10 hours in a day. That takes some cultivation. That takes a while. Yes. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's an important part, the discipline. Um, he does have this line, which I, I, I love <laughs> a lot. Gil Kane one day says that the uh, most important people in comics are the inkers and chicken's like what and he said it's the inker because he's the last man on the job he's the one who finishes it he's the one who defines the job uh 1968 he's given that quote credit but gil kane has said this in interviews since then so it's not limited to that point he's that's also, a wild like that's a weird thing to be confronted with sure sure I, nobody i didn't want to grow up to be an inker you know right. what i mean like the pencilers were the superstars yeah. to me uh -huh. So to hear somebody of Gil Kane's stature revealing this is like, mm -hmm. this is the truth in comics. It's really strange. There's that David Mazzucchelli piece where yes. he basically says the same thing. You know, you, like it, it, you would benefit by being the last hands Absolutely. On, on the project. And Mazzucchelli, I feel like, was talking about at like, after it's all in, including color seps and stuff. Right. Put that, at it. put that final set of eyeballs on it. Yeah. And, and if with any time left over, try to, you know, help it out. Uh, massage it a bit. The reason I bring up the inking quote, besides loving inking, is uh, you get down here and he talks about like Wally Wood. Wood had the same kind of deal. You know, like Wood would run a studio and mm -hmm. it'd be like, you know, Shaken talks about doing uh, like writing and penciling a cowboy strip and then it's like, oh yeah, you pass it by Wood on the way to the, to the, to the publisher, I guess, wherever it's going and that's where you get the Wood finish. Is, you know, like Wood becomes that most important person in the process the last guy to put some some marks on that page yeah. to make it wood this is kind of the manga system too where it's yeah. like will eisner also like it, we were at mocha that that one year together man and uh there was at at the mocha museum a lot of spirit pages and you saw so much white out on these pieces and uh it was indicative of the studio guys laying down the the story initially you know like he Will Eisner pasted it out, they did drawing on it, and then created basically the armature mm -hmm. for what the final page would be. And Eisner would just white out all the stuff that he wasn't feeling, <laughs> right. and it turned it into, put a Will Eisner piece on top of it. Mm -hmm. uh, the one thing about the inking being the last uh, step is like, it just shows how little of a concern coloring was back then. It didn't matter because it was like, you're going to see the art no matter what. Coloring is an afterthought. Whereas these days, I think the colorist might be like the last person who really um, shapes the page. It might ruin it, might make it. Yeah. But I it's just it's interesting. Is, uh, the biggest part of what we see in comics yeah. today.
And and you know what? Like like some of the comics that we're going to look at, uh, you know, this week, and things that we've been looking at for a while, I've be been becoming more and more impressed with like the Marvel bullpen of colorists, and have been looking at them with a more critical eye thanks to the channel and stuff. And they really are some badass people. Like it's so interesting yeah. back in those days when everybody had the same limited 64 colors that you could play with when in truly it's maybe like 25 colors because you're not going right. to be using all those browns and olive greens and shit like mm -hmm. that uh so it's almost like the colorist's palette is almost like when cartoonists have four squares to draw a strip and you see how charles burns i mean charles schultz does it radically different than chester gold like seeing what the colorists do with that very limited palette is something I've been paying attention to a lot over the past year. The limited palette is a treat to color with. Yeah. Let, let me tell you, anybody sure. at home who's starting to figure out color, like, man, set up about six colors and, and, and have some fun. It's, uh, it's, it's a real trick that uh, will make coloring a little bit more manageable. Talks about politics in comics and, you know, Chaikin's politics appearing in Flag. And Chaikin, he doesn't totally reject it. But in conjunction with the shadow stuff earlier, where he's like, I don't like vigilantes, sure, um, kind of pushes back a little bit about like how much you can actually get, especially in American Flag, where it's like 28 pages a month. Like, you're not getting much uh, of your politics on that page. You're trying to tell a good story. But also, it's not worth it because the audience, it kind of goes over their head. Yes, and yeah. he recognizes that. Cites, yeah. cites an example of one of those. Yeah, like this this little piece. Chicken knew that this was coming when when uh, Groth was about to bring it up. So this feels placid to me at this point like mm -hmm. like it feels like uh, yeah we've been dealing with this for our whole lives but this was like shocking to uh the readership of the day enough for gary groth to just start to mention it and and before he got two words out chicken knew exactly what he was talking about what speech this is flying, right cold, cold, cold war era too yeah there's a lot here that i feel like i don't know if you're not alive back then some of it doesn't have the impact it probably had at the time yeah, but Chaikin doesn't really write like this anyway, so that's why it stood out, and that's probably why Groth jumped on it, or right. was about to. Yeah, yeah, and Chaikin also says, you know, it's it, it doesn't have the impact he wants it to have, right? This is supposed to be this big speech moment when he rereads it. He doesn't feel that it's uh, quite that effective. Right. <laughs> it would suck to have your stuff scrutinized to this degree. <laughs> like, like <laughs> let's pull out your dialogue from this one page. Hey, yeah. listen, man, yeah. he benefits from a day before uh, Twitter, let's say that. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And even this stuff, like, you know, this stuff that it would be cancelable, uh, you know, right now. But right. he's like, you, you fucking dimwits don't know nothing <laughs> about, you know, the United uh, like Banana Company or whatever. It's also interesting, like, how much he's kind of um, past American flag. Because it's always present whenever you first encounter it, right? Like, yeah. I read it years after the fact. Sure. And it was the coolest book I'd ever read at that point. But it was 10 years later after it had been published. This is only a couple of years after publication. And you can see it feels like Chaikin's in a different place already. Right. He sure. got it out of his system. Sure. He's on to the next. I feel like that rings true for us personally. Like, you know, even kind of when the book comes out, it's already a year behind you. You're, you're working on the next thing. Uh, talking about the Jack Kirby return his art movement at this time this is great and chaikin doesn't sign on to that petition and, and uh mm -hmm. groth wants to know why yeah this is a great conversation because it's another one of those pieces where, where chaikin it, it feels like he's so well prepared he almost couldn't wait to get to this <laughs> it does, place it does feel that way where uh 
you know, he he says, and it's the exact. It, it's basically he's calling out virtue signaling before. That's it, what it is. It yeah. had it had yeah. it had a, a popular name to it, man. It's exactly like the Twitter crowd that jumps on the du jour grievance of the day, where self-interest of the people who jump on it. You yeah yeah you want more tweets. Well, at first he's nice about it, where it's like, well, I'm tired of being seen as a shit heel yes. and a rabble rouser. Yeah. But when he gets down to it, it's like, yeah, that's all kind of phony, self-serving bullshit. G like, Gary what's that about? It's not about Kirby. It's about you. Yeah, Gary Gary keeps le leaning into it, as as a good interviewer should, because he wants, you know, he wants an answer. And Chaykin actually says the thing that, you know, we all see with, you know, the Twitter crowd of today. Uh, do you really want to get jack his art back i mean i'm sure you do but you really got a problem with marvel you really think marvel's a bunch of punks and you want to make them look like assholes uh or shooter specifically or shooter specifically uh and just him saying that is such a beautiful statement not geared at uncle gary explicitly in, in, in with with in in terms of my interest in it but just we could project this to the forward day yeah. and the people online who are always the first ones like you go through their social media and you see that they're jumping on every grievance of the day mm -hmm. has nothing like you are not offended <laughs> you are not offended you look you are a depressed person looking to fuck with people sure this is fun he talks about being uh he's just too tired to get in the middle of this being a provocateur and uh groth's like you're 35 and chaykin says you don't work as hard as I do. Yes. <laughs> I feel like every cartoonist I know has a version of that feeling at some point in their life. <laughs> Especially whenever you sit at home all day drawing, and then whoever it is you live with or, or relatives or whatever that they go to the nine to five, just think you do nothing. Right. Sure. Because you don't leave the house. Right. You're just sitting and you're drawing little pictures, you know. But it's work. It's work. And, you know, Chicken could back it up with his schedule and his output. Yeah, it talks about getting up super early and stuff. Seven days a week on flag. Man, think of the tool that takes over a couple of years. Like, that's that's a crazy schedule to maintain for, for years on end. Yeah. 8 a.m. to 7 uh, p.m. So at least it's regular. You know yes, man, that's still, that's uh, almost Seems 80 constant. hours a week. Yeah, it's constant. To do that for three years, you're going to be tired. And just coming up with, like, story after story... That's really different. He's trying to push the boundaries. He's not just like it's not like boilerplate material. Yeah, that and that's the thing too. There are it's no like fill-ins. You're you're kind of juggling three issues at a time because covers are needed at a certain time for one issue. Story blurbs are needed for the distribution catalog, you know, several months in advance so that they need to know what issue you're on. You know, I had an idea of doing Red Room for for uh, for as a monthly for like eight, twelve issues in right. a row, and just seeing the the realities of that, uh, just impossible as a, as a one man operation. He talks about having no hobbies. You just don't have I'm, a life outside of the studio. I think we understand that because uh, we're not drawing comics at this moment, but we're leaning <laughs> into comics in a very big way right this uh, second. Yeah, they're more of my life now than ever. Uh, sex and comics. <laughs> yes, of course, sex and comics. I was surprised that we don't get any Black Kiss uh, talk could in, be before in this interview. Doesn't That's it, what I wonder if it's it in the Yeah, it could be before it. Must oh, be, really? It must be before it. 
It must be. It Black Kiss was, uh, I want to say, 87, 88. It would have been talked about for sure. Uh, if Okay. If it, it's good to know, because that's something I would be curious to hear about. And Ed, thinking about Black Kiss made me think about Red Room, mm -hmm. and not just because of the colors in the title. Like, it feels like I would be curious to hear you and you and Howard discuss those two books and, and kind of uh, your audiences and intentions <laughs> and things of that nature. Because they both feel like they're, they're pushing against a certain thing. And, um, you know, the values may change over time, but it feels like they were both sort of provocative in a certain, uh, against a certain direction. And, and this is a fascinating piece because it, it, it's like, it's, ble it's bleeding edge. And, and the idea of bringing sex into comics of, of like a mainstream comic where, where there's like a narrative is a bleeding edge idea. And when you read it, you realize like, yes, of course it is. What would you get before? Maybe a peck on the cheek with Mary Jane mm -hmm. or something like that. Uh, you know, at, at best, uh, Abby Kane, uh, eating some potatoes off of Swamp Thing's <laughs> right. back yeah, right. and hugging him in embrace. <laughs> it's very true, but considering how much time Groth spends on this subject matter, it makes sense to me that Black Kiss comes out of this. Because yeah. I'm sure this was a, a topic that came up in a lot of Howard Chaykin interviews and a lot of, uh, critical reaction to American Flag. So if you're a creator you know, it's like, oh, I hit something here. And the it's something is, I'm interested in, right? Like, he talks about being interested in this, and if you're into commercial art, like, there's a rich history of erotica in commercial art. Well, that's the thing. He's an adult, right? It's one of his interests. It's it's used as a way, like, sex is used as a storytelling uh, element. It's not. That's why it's not porn, right? But because it's done in his specific way, and no one really tackles sex the way he does, that's why it stands out, and everyone just talks about that one aspect. But to him, it's not a big deal. It's like, yeah, so what? So my heroes fuck, big deal. What's your problem, you know? Right. But think about the audience of, and what they're used to. Like, they see that just grid right there. Right, yes. You know, and it's like, holy shit, everyone's mind is blown. Or if Blackhawk gets a blowjob, then, oh my God, that's the most memorable part of Blackhawk, when really it's like an afterthought. Like, who gives a shit? Yes. Yeah, it's part of what really feels adult about his comics, too, because it is kind of handled in a, here it is, and keep moving, you know? Yeah, it's not a big deal. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Right. So I think Black Kiss was his, was his doubling down. I'm like, all right, you want porn? Here it is. Just nothing. This is porn. This is a porn comic. Yeah. I think it was a hit. Yeah, I believe so. I think it did well. <laughs> I think it did, too. That's really funny. <laughs> One of his more profitable books, I believe. Mm-hmm. Just continuing this conversation describes um, some of the, I don't know the, the the details, the fetish elements as being self-indulgent, and it's like, yeah, of course, sure. You know, he's the audience. Um, yeah, draw what you like. Kind of a crazy piece here of this character that Flag hooks up with that has wears a swastika, mm -hmm. and it's like, I, I, you couldn't get away with any of this now, I don't think. And if you did, it would become like this would be the story well, of he does. the series and the issue. I mean, he still does shit like that you know it's still the you know it's still shaken being shaken yeah. but he's been doing it since like forever 82 or before but you know the problem the uh, uh the problem in a lot of ways it could come from like isolation of a yes pan and you take it out of right, context, no context right and now you know but they talk about this scene they talk about they do it's not out of context as long as you read the interview with it sure right and it's 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 interesting to hear shaken describe it right because it's mostly like following your di your dick leading you into trouble essentially sure um which is is again a very adult thing right, right like right so some conversation you're not going to see in a lot of these comics uh comics interviews but 
applicable to his work and probably one of the more maybe realistic uh, depictions of sex in a weird way. Shame, for sure. shame comes with the jizz. Yes. <laughs> and I bet it's the only time the word jizz is used that it, not referring to, you know, Robert Crumb comic of your... Or the comic jizz. Right, right. Exactly. Published That's what I'm by Fanographics. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> oh, that, was, that wasn't uh, Crumb? The Crumb might have had something like that, but there was a series called Jizz. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was concurrent with Gasm, I think. Not published by the same publisher, but I think it was the same time time frame when they were both coming out. Jizz and Which Gasm. would be like, what, the dirty version of Heavy Metal or something? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I have to point out, Dan Of course. Moss, Rain Ness, one of my favorite 80s black and white uh, cartoonists, you and can... it's amazing to see a full-page ad. Yeah, but uh, the fun doesn't stop there, because you could just flip. And then you get, I know we got full runs of Stark Future from Aerosol Comics. Dude, a lot of, this is in the teens, right? It might even be 20 issues worth of oh, Stark yeah. Future have been published. One of the long-running 80s black I'm, and white I'm, books. I might have two runs of it. This is the first Chaken comic I ever read. Time Outside two. of the interview. Um, yeah, this was an American flag special that led into Times Squared, right? Where it was like, oh, mm -hmm. this is like a backdoor pilot, sort of. And I just picked it out randomly, and I just, I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. You know? Um... So this image right here is, I don't know, holds a very special place in my heart. Yeah. This leads into, uh, they talk about costume design. And he names a few guys who he thinks are good at costume design in comics. Mm -hmm. And it speaks to his appreciation of fashion. And I think that's an element of American Flag. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. Times Square and a lot yeah. of his work right. that, again, pops. And the fun part with fashion is very related to superhero costuming, in my opinion. You he, know, like you're really dressing your characters he, in a way that generic artists don't. He called his own fashion a costume. You know, like if you, you could, yes. you'd see old photos of him and he's very dapper Yeah. and he described it as costume and uh, speaks also to just like old young insecurities and things where he was slightly rotund little boy. And you hear this from bigger guys, bigger people uh, who, who were alive in the 70s and stuff where you had to go to the big and tall store to get certain things and nobody cared about you in terms of fashion it was almost it was almost uh like such a niche part of civilization that like gucci ain't spending much time thinking about how to dress you you know and like in old hip-hop like dudes would talk about like you had to go to dapper dan because you could not look fresh mm -hmm. if you were you know morbidly obese you, there was no cool clothes for you you had to get right. them specially made that's funny as they get into Times Square discussion, very uh, talk about a time shot, you know, a period of, of this time as like they're trying to explain the format. And it's a, essentially a European graphic album, 44 pages, uh -huh. uh, trade paperback, oversized, painted color. Those books are beautiful and, and definitely something worth uh, worth our time to look at. Oh, yeah. For uh, sure. They're amazing, but it's funny because it's like it's this foreign, like, what are we talking about here? This new format that you're working on. Very ahead of its time. What of. I forgot that he mentioned here was that he the, he expected to make uh, every every issue of Times Squared and really their self-contained stories, but one every six to seven months. Yeah, which is crazy to me, especially considering that only two exist because he just got swept up in other schedules. But that was it's kind of crazy that that was expected. When he answers that, he's looking at his wife. When he's answering that, it's mentioned in the piece, man, and it's almost like him telling her like, "It's going to take about." I'm doing one of these every six months. Mm -hmm. Get ready. Right. <laughs> and they're intense. Uh, uh, they're intense pieces. I yeah. mean, it's not just, he's, I don't know. There's a lot of work that, go in, that goes into those pages. Oh, yeah. yeah, amazing layouts. Yeah. Those page page layouts are phenomenal. 
uh, talks about jazz music. Yes. So <laughs> I have nothing to add, but it's and fun he, to hear him going through like 20s to the 50s and, and, and challenging mm -hmm. Gary a little bit on what he listens to and maybe try this or have you heard this? That, that's, an, that's another homework of, of <laughs> Howard Chaykin, and that's where we're talking about like the voices in there because, uh, I mean, it's, it's exhibited in our shoot interview where he's just naming names of cool illustrators and asking, you know, this guy, no, oh my God, you got to check out. And he's not dismissive and he's not like, it's not that thing like, oh my God, you don't know this. Right. He's like, dude, you got to check this out. Sure. Like this shit is so cool, man. And it informs this and this, like he's, he's real rad about it. Yeah. Yeah. So the back end of this interview, it's all pretty much just Times Squared character pieces, just kind of what he's been working on. It's his main character. Maxim Glory talks about this idea that he he thinks it'll he'll find it more difficult to make a good living in comics going forward. Yeah, and his reasons for that is that the material it sells generates more of that material. So now we've got, you know, let's do two Teenage Mutant books. Let's sure. do four. Let's do eight. Man, is that prophetic? Yes, sure. And right. I suppose it's already happening here, it's but like. It really does come to dominate when we get into like the '90s wizard conversations. It's like at that point, it's totally manifested. Yeah, like that is the model. Yeah, and it's no different than any other form of pop culture. Sure. You know, I mean, it's it's what would Roger Corman be if if there wasn't like these like big things that he could do his Erzatz versions of, or uh, eight Friday the Thirteenth movies. Like you have your tent pool, and then you have bottom feeders it almost goes back to that young adult like mm -hmm. you got the big one now let's have a bunch of little ones to try to just nip at the heels whatever the audience wants man if you can make it sell sure absolutely and he just some more yeah Chaykin just identifies that he can't be a part of that at least not in mainstream quote-unquote mainstream comics and and uh, there's an old conversation we had with uh, where people were talking about they knew Martin Goodman when he was publisher of Marvel, and the whole model was throw some spaghetti at the wall. Uh, if one of these things is hitting, we're doing six next month of whatever that thing is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not new to X-Men. No. And it's not new to comics. This is talk on uh, work for hire. Yes. And Chaykin's fine with it, as long as you know what you're getting going in, essentially, is my takeaway from that spin. Groth is, is, is pretty critical, and they go back and forth a bit. Even uh, Groth pulling out Frank Miller as being critical of work for hire, and it's like, dude's doing Batman, Gary. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. I don't. I don't think Miller was ever really against work for hire. I think he knew that he was probably against something else, and it just got folded into that argument. I it's can't hard, recall that. Hard to tell because I. I think you know, like with Ronan, he got some ownership in. Sure. So I think that's something that guys were definitely fighting for. But I mean, look, he did bat. He did the biggest Batman book he in did, history. He so. did Born Again around this time. Right. He went back to doing RoboCop versus Terminator. I mean, that's all work for hire. Chicken said, "Explain the uh, the American flag first deal." which is that yeah. it's licensed through Howard Chaikin Incorporated mm -hmm. is how uh, First is able to publish it. And it's really strange, the language that's involved with like how this is set up. You know, it doesn't... It sounds like it, First it, has not, a lot of hands in it. Yeah, it's not as cut and dried as when we go like, Image Comics, creator-owned. Like, this is very roundabout the way this, this sounds like it's described. Yeah, and I mean, it's the reason why, like, it, there was a big gulf in, like, Grim Jack comics coming out. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that there was a little bit of a gulf in between Nexus 
before it hit Dark Horse. Um, it's, yeah. it's been even Grendel longer. was a big one, you know. Like, oh, well, like, I'm talking like, about for specific. Just, just okay, just first to be germane to to, to this topic. But like, uh, I mean, American Flag was like what 20 years before like an image collection came from like there was no in between from first in like the image collection i don't think right yeah i don't know if that was a legal thing as much as just where shaken was you know i think he could have done it but i think there was also technical stuff that was at issue there but it's just interesting to me to hear like if you're going to do a creator-owned book it was not an easy proposition apparently at this time yeah right. especially if you wanted to protect yourself how about this good shit right here talk about looking at akira <laughs> katsuhiro otomo yes yeah, real interesting. Uh, one of the first Japanese comics that he's really responded to. No, the, sorry, to go back to the American flag thing, is that what's interesting is that he says in this interview that DC under uh, bid for it. Like it was, it was maybe going to first, it was maybe going to DC. It was around the time Ronin was coming out. So that suggests that he offered it to them or that, you know for potential buyers it was Man, on the market an amazing comics history what if but but also recently i thought i heard him say something that Jeanette khan was kind of mad at him like why didn't you bring american flag to dc and chicken's response was like well you wouldn't have printed it the way i wanted it to be which is a fair point but that that's also i don't know if it contradicts that maybe the timeline is different maybe he's not mentioning that here but the fact that dc just wasn't willing to pay enough for it or maybe not pay enough for him to make those changes that that they required it's i don't one, know it's one of those tough things man that we do have like retrospect to just kind of look at things and 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 you could you can make your own assessments of like how you want your stuff to 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 go but man with the with the infrastructure that dc had in terms of distribution eyeballs on their stuff there is some value in taking a little pay cut to have that better position in uh the the the, the diamond books and stuff you know there's value there for sure like you might be able to make up for it on the back end because you're going to sell more if it was a dc comic mm -hmm. probably you know there's a brand equity that comes along with sure, some of that stuff just by sheer presence but also but then you think about like uh in this in this very issue which we won't cover like bud plan is talking about how how um they all bet heavy on ronin uh the retailers and distributors they all bet heavy and they got burnt so you could have been a casualty of that right. it's, it's just interesting stuff to think about yeah that's i mean that is the what if because yeah. like there was nobody there that could really deliver this book that Jana khan had i don't know a vision of like let's bring this kind of publishing house mentality to dc comics yeah american flag would have been that book could have been that book and, and who knows right once once dc sort of goes hey we can't have right can't have the sex in here or can't have this or that maybe it all falls apart but the way that book's <laughs> yeah. constituted it could almost have been vertigo a decade early yeah yeah uh, and then they just are running through like some of the other stuff that that gets Chaikin's eye, and you know we mentioned Toth and Kurtzman, Wally Wood, uh, Dave Gibbons mentions the uh, the Dave Gibbons book that's coming up, Watchmen, a beautiful book, truly lovely, very nice stuff. Didn't uh, Gibbons say something like Chaikin read the first issue and was so impressed? He's like, you'll never re uh, keep this. Uh, quality of content past three issues <laughs> it'll never happen that's that's his compliment it's like this is so good you're not going to beat this that feels real accurate you know i mean you think about monthly comic books and it's like yeah good luck and those were a little late toward the end when, when we had gibbons on the show man like he said that in fact it was our january first episode of this year when we're looking at that last issue of watchmen you don't realize because we have the book you know we have the, the finished watchmen mm -hmm. but 
it could have and there was perhaps at least a very little bit of conversation in-house Dick Giordano, Jeanette Kahn and crew that maybe we get a fill-in dude to do an issue mm. of Watch. Like that was it, a possibility and there was nothing in contracts that could have prevent that prevented that from potentially happening. It could have gone that way. Yeah. Could to keep imagine? on schedule and shit. <laughs> Man, imagine yeah, the effect that that would have had even on the creative team you would think it would be just they're killing themselves on that book clearly and to have somebody come in and fill in an issue yeah, that would be devastating. That's a Marvel move back then. I mean, think about the Punisher mini. Zach was right. Yeah, it was Zach wasn't even late. That editor was just so strict about being ahead of schedule. And they got a couple of fill-ins toward the end, and it, you know, people have said that's why it's not a perennial. Sure. That's why it's just another '80s mini, yeah. a forgotten mini. Um, anything else for you guys stand out? Like he, you know, again, he's naming a bunch of people. He names Harvey P. Carr and says that. It's interesting, but it's um, <laughs> it's not something that he's sure he's interested in from comics. And when Groth presses him, he describes it as depression and a level of despair maintained. <laughs> and he's being super nice about it. I mean, I feel like he's employing restraint. Yeah, I'm talking about these guys. It, it is interesting to consider comics through those different lenses. Um, names a few French. You know, they go through some of the French artists: Manera, Hergé. Uh, getting kind of his impression, you know, Groth's throwing out these names. Does mention Mike Zack. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You know, and his Mentioned Punisher, Punisher. specifically is yeah. something that stood out. Kevin Nolan. So it's kind of fun. I always like seeing these guys weigh in on other cartoonists and what they see in their work. You know, I was going to, I was looking for it to put it on uh, the, the kayfabe um, social media. But he said something, that there's a drawing out there that Kevin Nolan did of Ruben Flagg. Maybe oh. it's is it an Amazing Heroes cover? Or no, something? it's a it's a journal, it's a journal cover, and it's him drawing every single character running off a cliff. So there's Crumb, I think Cerebus is hanging from the cliff, okay. and he draws Ruben Flag. Yeah, I remember says, that. Uh, yeah. It was the best he'd ever seen that Kevin I, Nolan drawing, was, including his own. I was looking for that. I was looking for that. Yeah, because he's talking about like you know the Batman and Outsiders. Like whenever you see these badass dudes drawing these characters, you just automatically assume that they created them. Uh, and you find out that they didn't, and that's where he's talking about, like, yeah, when Kevin Nolan drew Ruben Flag, like, he took notice. I think it speaks to some of that stuff we were talking about, like, when Greg Capullo did that um, Savage Dragon. Right. And then Eric Larson kind of picked up a couple of things, perhaps, maybe. Mm -hmm, you know, that's mm -hmm. our conjecture, but it yeah. feels sound. The cool thing about that cover Nolan did is that he tried to ink every character in the respective style of its creator. So I think Crumb had a little bit of cross-hatching. Ruben Flagg might have had that little stippling to mimic the duo shade. But uh, Chaykin here calls Nolan a strange duck, <laughs> which I think is funny. Yeah. Because he's... Seems about right. Really nice, otherwise. And, and, and this is the new era of the, the the really good slow guys. I forget what they call... What they say that like the studio can be called. Unproductive studios. <laughs> instead of upstart studios. Unproductive studios. And get Mike Golden to art direct that shop. You know what, though? He does give Mike Golden credit for being really good. Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah. He says, you know, he draws a character, and it's the first time it's been seen. Um, yeah, yeah. Mike so. Golden even impressed Gil Kane. Gil Kane would just, like, fawn over those pages when they would come in. So that's the, uh, that's the Chaykin interview. Yes. 
uh, not in a nutshell, but that's it. And I would be curious to uh, maybe read a follow-up interview or two that would cover, because they referenced his interview eight years prior to this. Mm-hmm. And we could do that one. And I would love to read a uh, Black Kiss, a post-Black Kiss kind of conversation, because, I mean, imagine that's that may be his swan song before he takes his little Hollywood break. It's been uh, a long time since we cracked open a TCJ interview. Michelle, I want to thank you so much for suggesting this, because this puts the battery in the back. We have such resources. Uh, Fanta has given us the keys to the kingdom. We have access to so many issues that we don't have on paper. Like, if we have to straight up, you know, go digital, like we've done with some, we're just going to do that. But there is a rich history that we're going to be able to uh, reassess and bring fresh eyes to, Jimmy, that uh, I think this is going to change a little bit of... uh, the culture of the channel to a, to a certain extent, in a way. I miss these kinds of interviews. So good. I feel like reading this, and, and just, it reminds me of reading tons of comics journals early early on in my life. Yeah. And it's uh, it's such an inspiration, I think, for, for what I want to do here, Cartoonist Kayfabe, because, like, these are conversations that, like, they weren't taking place anywhere else. No. Like, like uh-huh. let's talk about the industry. Let's talk about comics as art. Let's get into all of this stuff. This is a great interview. It's as close to a legit trade magazine yeah. or journal if you will that that uh the comic industry has ever had and uh you know very sad that like when we interview gary groth he basically said to us like people don't want it don't want to pay for it people yeah people do not want it like they're not going to pay for this <laughs> our, <stuff>. our fallen world <laughs> but man i always think it's great the people that we do get like uh, good people in comics we are blessed that Chaykin has been around comics for decades. Absolutely. Like, he could have left and not come back at any point. Left a couple of times. So uh, I, I am grateful that we get so much time with him in comics. And we're going to get some personal time when we go to Baltimore this year, man. Uh, let's wrap things up. Kayfaber's Life, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell so we can notify you when new vids are available. Michelle, what do you got on the horizon that the people need to get their hands on? Uh, I got a Copra Master Collection, which collects the first 12 issues. Uh, Image Comics is putting it out. It's an oversized hardcover. I also have the collections going up to round six, which uh, collects the newest issues. And this is uh, the latest issue. It's up to issue 43. You could get it at my website, michellefife.com. And it's all there for you to see. Jimmy. You can pick up Hulk Grand Design Monster Madness in comic shops everywhere right now. Complete retelling of the 60-year history of the Incredible Hulk. A oversized collection is on its way. It will be out first thing next year, so pre-order that wherever you grab books. Street Angel Deadly Girl Live. Available again in comic shops and bookstores everywhere from Image Comics. This has been out of print for a year, so it is back in print. Pick that up wherever you buy books. And you can join me on Patreon.com slash Jim Rugg where you can see a lot more of my art and comics. And you can download some of my out of print zines and mini comics red room trigger warnings is in stores uh late september 2022 murder on the dark web for fun and profit is the name of the game good companion piece to go along with the anti-social network but every story within these comics is self-contained so you don't have to start at the beginning man if you see one of these trades scoop it up give it a shot uh you'll be able to uh scoop the other stuff if you uh dig it enough um, I'm serializing new Red Room comics that have not yet hit paper on my Patreon. Patreon.com slash Ed Piscor. Three bucks get you the archive there. I have all of these comics plus the new stuff put out at uh, new 
pages every Tuesday. You can get to the links to order comics. Hit up my Patreon at my link tree in the description below this video. Jimmy, what else do we have out there? Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video. Another great way to support the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel. Give them those marching orders, Jimbo. We'll be on our way. Make more comics.